Welcome to Kyperian Commentary. I'm your host, Yuri Brito. This is episode 102. I'm often reminded of the Epiphany account where three kings bring gifts to our Lord Jesus, and the gifts are the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And very often, we overlook these gifts, and we just assume these are the kinds of things that ancient people bring to royalty. But there's more to it. Our evangelical churches in our day have stressed tremendously the importance of discipleship. There is a plethora of books in discipleship in the market today. Discipleship is good, it's necessary, but discipleship, at least in evangelical ethos, is often discussed in the context of intellectual learning, like a fact-finding mission, let's say. But there's more to discipleship than facts. Discipleship in the Bible is the cultivation of bodily postures, biblical manners, we might say. It's the, the training of table etiquettes. The Bible trains us to move and live and have our being in God. And it seems to me that any model of discipleship that does not include learning to kneel, raise your hands, eat, sing, show affection, to speak gently, to receive, to give, sit, stand, etc., is missing a fundamental element of what true discipleship is. And we see these in the three gifts given to our Lord Jesus Christ. The gold speaks of the fruit of our labors. Calvin develops this theme quite often. Discipleship is tested in how you are using God's gifts. If our possessions own our affections, we might say that we're being deformed, not formed. We're being undiscipled, not disciples. But if our affections control our possessions and we dispense of it accordingly in charity, in hospitality, we're being formed by our possessions, which is the way things ought to be. Then there's the frankincense, which is like, a perfume. It's the display of the kind of human being we want to be in the presence of our King. Paul talks quite a bit about this. We are to be a sweet-smelling aroma unto God. And finally, we see the use of myrrh. The Bible speaks very often of this, and we we see that in the in the gift of myrrh, we are looking at the anointing that God gives unto his people the kind of anointing that makes us kings unto God, the kind of anointing that makes us priests and prophets, and the kind of anointing that makes us royal in the presence of the living God. Our guest in this episode is Chase Davis. Chase is the lead pastor of the Well Church in Denver, Colorado, and he's the author of an excellent book that I've had a chance to read entitled Trinitarian Formation, A Theology of Discipleship. Chase, welcome to the program. Hey, I'm so glad to be here. Delight to have you, man. It's been a long time. We're glad we made this happen. The very immediate reaction that I had to this book on discipleship is that you're putting together on the intellectual ring two very brilliant men, that is uh, Dr. J.K. Smith and uh, Professor John Frame. Why did you choose these two titans, you might say? Why not other titans? Why these two? to speak and to develop this theme of discipleship in the book? That's a great question. And, and right off the bat, I have to talk about the, the timing of your introduction uh, and the content you shared just then, because I just preached on that topic yesterday from Exodus 30, talking about the, uh, the incense and the anointing oil and the gifts that they brought. And I was telling our church uh, how all the gifts are fulfilled in Christ and I just love the introduction. You, you connected it in a way that I did not connect it, and I wish I had, uh, with uh, triperspectivalism. And uh, boy, that was that was 
providential that you shared that with me. So I'm blessed already just being here. Uh, but the uh, yeah, the way I came upon the uh, the two figures that I'm talking about in my book, well, uh, part of my story growing up in the evangelical church had to do with um, a great dissatisfaction with kind of understanding things and theology, and it was a it was a, a fairly anemic. Uh, version of uh, of discipleship, and a lot of times it felt like behavior modification. Other times it felt like I had to go to the, get theological training, and and so I was always curious. So I went to seminary, planted to church. Um, I had a strong conviction that making disciples was part of the Great Commission and part of God's mandate in the world, and so I knew that we needed to. But as soon as I began to explore what does it mean to make disciples, I started asking that question because if we're going to lead people in a church, and we're planting a church, we should probably be able to define that. Well, when I did that, I got curriculums, I got definitions, and all of them seemed, uh, you know, to contradict at places, and to be uh, unclear, and not comprehensive enough. And then I stumble upon John Frame, and I start reading him, and it's as if I someone is giving me a cool drink of water on a hot day, uh, his writing is just accessible, and makes sense. Um, and so I started fleshing this idea of triperspectivalism out in um, in our church, and I started trying to apply it. And so some of my pastors, granted, they looked at me like I I'd gone crazy. You know, I'm on a whiteboard drawing all these things out, showing how different ministries uh, really do a better job of some perspectives than others. And so I I developed this kind of philosophy of discipleship that was derived from triperspectivalism, um, and really discipleship is kind of a a bucket term where you could put spiritual formation, Christian spirituality, um, a lot of different things in it. And so I wanted to write on that and explore that. Uh, so I was getting my thesis uh, at Denver Seminary, um, going to write it on pers- uh, triperspectivalism and uh, Christian spirituality. And my advisor said, uh, you know, you need to pick something to interface it with. That would be a useful way, a test case. Uh, my first thought was I grew up in the Southern Baptist tradition, so I'll pick that. Well, that was part of the problem is there's so many uh, theories and you could go a lot of different directions. So it was easier for me to pick a figure and a recent figure who's written a lot on liturgy and discipleship and formation and, um, and culture making and education is James K. Smith. I'd seen a lot of my friends picking up his ideas and implementing them. I'd also found some uh, insufficiencies in his you know model. Uh, and so I wanted to maybe highlight some of those ways that could be improved upon where triperspectivalism could come and uh, make a better case. And so th- that's how I landed on those two figures. Really, it was out of a love for frame and appreciation for Smith, but also kind of a uh, helpful critique. I, at least I hope it was helpful. We'll see if one day he picks up the book. Maybe this podcast will be the launching point for that. And uh, maybe he'll he'll write one of his uh, his notorious reviews somewhere of uh, people who, uh, who take him up. So uh, that's how I came upon those two figures. Okay, that's that's fantastic. So Let's talk a little about um, about Jamie Smith because, in some ways, he kind of broke some very unique barriers in the discipleship conversation. Right? Um, you refer in the first chapter about the kinds of pragmatic models of discipleship. Give us a couple of examples of pragmatic discipleship and how Jamie Smith sort of offers a, a different way, a better way, we might say. To discipleship. Yeah, so I'll start with Jamie Smith and work my way back towards the pragma- pragmatic critique. So Jamie Smith obviously offers a version of discipleship and formation that is much more comprehensive in how we're formed through liturgical practice, um, through rhythms and habits and, uh, and, and various activities. His famous you know, illustration, if, if your listeners haven't heard it, 
is um, how the going to the mall is a type of liturgical experience, you know, and uh, right. and that can be taken in a lot of different ways. It, it, it's become a running joke amongst my friends because, you know, I'll be at a football game and I'm like, look, liturgy. And so you can see it everywhere. <laughs> um, but but it's a helpful critique. And the reason why is because for discipleship, for a lot of people, it's very linear in terms of its, uh, you know, uh, progress of you, you learn certain activities, particularly in his critique, he's critiquing the reform community, which I wouldn't I wouldn't say I grew up in the reform community in the SBC, but the reform community is apparently very, uh, very obsessed with the intellect confessions, right doctrine, mm -hmm. uh, which I appreciate greatly. Um, but that that version, that kind of pragmatic, like if you do this, A plus B equals C, if you do these things, then things will work out. Uh, for a lot of people, they're dissatisfied with that. And there's a godly dissatisfaction because I don't believe that's how it necessarily is supposed to work. And so the pragmatics have to do with uh, right belief, um, and then you'll get other versions too, but, but he's typically taking up that right belief. And so you'll get this in evangelicalism where um, they'll typically phrase it as, you know, you believe the right things and then certain things happen. Now, some evangelicals will get clever. Um, there's the whole, you know, you, we want you to belong before you believe or, or something like that. Yeah. And so they'll, they'll try to get clever with it. But they typically, the, the pragmatism comes with that kind of modern treating people as machines. Um, we're going to put you in the process, and then out on the other side, we're going we're to produce a full-fledged disciple. And even in education, you'll get, okay, now you've got the credentials. We get credentialism. And that's a version of pragmatism where because you've got this paper on the wall that says you've done something, um, therefore you're now a disciple um, and uh and so that's that's Smith's critique in in general. There's we could get into a lot of details on Smith because it's very complicated. Uh, it can be cumbersome. I think it's it's fairly nuanced and uh, and you know he comes from a philosophy background, so he's bringing a lot of things to the mm -hmm. table. But I think if I had to summarize it, he would be critiquing the priority of the head and how that shapes the heart, um, and he's trying to invert it in some ways. When you talk about the Christian spiritual formation. What would be sort of your to-go definition so our listeners can get a, a good grasp of where your direction is? Yeah, so Christian spiritual formation for me, and, and honestly, some of it since I've written the book um, has has not, it's not changed, but it's, it's broadened. Because Christian spiritual okay. formation for me had to do with uh, individuals uh, being formed in Christ-likeness and the various practices and, and ways we go about that. So it's a whole... It's a whole discipline of thinking uh, about Christian spirituality. And if I were to summarize it, it would be being formed in your head, heart, and hands, and your love for God and others. And so that's my basic definition of Christian spirituality. What does it mean to practice spiritual formation? Is being formed in your head, heart, and hands, and your love for God and others. But uh, as I mentioned, I mean, Christian spirituality is a, a, a wide uh, discipline and you can easily slip into once you get in those waters there's very liberal waters to find because uh, you'll get a lot of people who delve into mysticism and I think there's some redeemable things there but um, you'll you'll see people take on a very liberal uh, bent in Christian spirituality often in the academy okay so there emerges then our um, our favorite professor John frame yeah. and he comes into the scene and he sort of offers this holistic uh, integrative approach to discipleship, and he offers something that, uh, in many ways, it's 
whereas other discipleship models have dealt with discipleship in, in little tiny pieces or emphasized on one practice their discipleship models on one little slice of the of the whole. John Frame comes along and he offers a threefold model. Develop what his triperspectival is and how you apply that to discipleship itself. Yeah, so his his threefold model is uh, based on three perspectives on knowledge, and so it's okay. the normative, the existential, and the situational. And those are sound like complicated words or not. The normative is just standards, norms, how we know what is facts, brute facts. Uh, the existential is affections, desires, the kind of immaterial experience that one might uh, feel. And then the, the situational is how that plays out in community and in life. And so those three perspectives, triperspectivalism is kind of the danger in it. It can be a theory of everything. You know, once you read his, if you read Frame Systematic and you start seeing triangles in the book on every page, then you look out at the world and there's triangles everywhere. And, uh, you know, that's that's normal. That's a normal experience. That's That's what happens. Yeah. But uh, but he offers that what he hadn't done um, as much. He'd done it in his uh, Doctrine of the Christian Life a little bit, but really fleshed it out into a way that um, could be applied in Christian spirituality, Christian formation, discipleship, informing people. And actually in his, I don't know how you pronounce it, Feetscraft or the book that was written in his honor, um, a couple Best of, trip, yep. yeah, that, uh, a couple of the authors allude to um, how there needs to be work done. And so I took that as like, great. I'm happy to do that work. Let's do it. And so for me, what he does is he offers a, uh, what he's now acknowledging, which he didn't early on in his uh, writing career, is that it's based on the Trinity, um, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so it fits into the plan of redemption um, in that way. And so now there's been work done by Tim Miller and other people um, who have connected the Trinitarian implications of his triperspectivalism. And so there's both a a trinitarian theology component but also for me i took it and applied it to christian spirituality but those three perspectives normative existential um and situational which i summarize you can summarize it in head heart hands which is what i try to do in the book but i think that can get a little for for a lot of people they assume oh head heart hands that's an easy thing to remember which it is i use that at our church to decide like to teach people about discipleship but i like to phrase it in duty doctrine and devotion that gets a little mm. bit more on the nose as far as what we're talking about. And it's a, it's a less predictable uh, alliteration um, so that people ask more questions and they're more curious. Yeah, I absolutely love the, that summary you gave. I'm going to be using it forthwith, as the Brits would say. <laughs> now, Chase, one of the things we, we talk a lot about when it comes to Trinitarian theology, especially the application to discipleship, is that generally when people sort of uh, want to talk about discipleship, it's not that they have this this sense of absolute purity, but they're seeking this kind of perfection. You apply this principle here, therefore your sanctification will lead you directly here. And one of the things that you bring out in the book, uh, especially towards the end, is that we have to acknowledge our, our limitations and creaturehood, right? That however we apply these this threefold model, there's going to be a sense of limitation in what we do. How do we... Uh, engage that as pastors and leaders how do we engage that with our people so they can understand it and so that they don't they don't find themselves completely in a position of absolute failure when they don't meet that criteria yeah that's a great question it, i think it's really an invitation to uh to freedom in christ in the sense that once you can help people understand their own finitude you know a lot of the puritans they would talk about the christian life is is about preparing to die well and so uh 
if we can, as pastors, remind them of their own contingency and dependence, just as by nature of being human, um, that can be uh, helpful in opening the door to that conversation because so much of our um, striving in this world is a bucking against kind of the limitations, the godly limitations that, that we have. I mean, I was in a prayer meeting the other day and uh, with other pastors of the city, and we're praying for our city, praying for our leaders. And uh, one of my prayers is just, you know, we have to acknowledge the fact that even me as a pastor, you know, we, we're invited in our modern world to care about so much and care about things that really, at the end of the day, I have very little power over. And I think our, uh, a lot of people in our world are burdened by that powerlessness. Um, they're burdened by the fact that they can't affect the change they want in the world. They go to work and they feel it's meaningless. Um, our whole education system is based on a nihilistic, atheistic kind of uh, public education, that is, um, kind of perspective. And so people already sense that despondency that can come from contingency and creatureliness, and they fight against it. And what I want to do is help people embrace it. Um, you'll get evangelicals who write books about being radical or or doing other such things where they're trying to push Christians to be more than they they, they can be. Um, and, and once you actually kind of embrace this creaturely perspective, boy, is it freeing, because all of a sudden it opens the door to learning and humility, and, uh, and you can recognize God's sovereignty over your life in a way that, that prior to that, you may assume, hey, in this life, I'm going to accomplish uh, God-like things that, that God hasn't given you the ability. This even gets into, I mean, think of it this way, you're, you're a smart guy, you've gotten degrees, there are, there are, uh, there are intellectual limitations that a lot of people have, you know, and for a lot of pastors, we expect people to be able to track with us into the, the deep pools of theology, which is a good desire. It's not wrong. But for a lot of people, this is also what the Puritans got. Well, they were speaking to the common man, you know, and, and we, we have to be right. able to make theology accessible because we put these standards in front of people. Like if you don't know what predestination is and you can't explain it and you can't dis explain uh, the doctrines of grace, well, you're not really a mature Christian yet. And it's like, well, I'm not so sure about that. In fact, some people have a lot of intellectual limitations where they're just not going to get there in this life. And so it helps people kind of settle in. Hopefully not. It would, it would not encourage a, a pacifism where we are passivity in our growth, where we should just kind of let, let go and let God. That's, that's not what we're encouraging. We're just trying to acknowledge the fact that like, hey, like you wouldn't have been here if you weren't born. You know, just like, let's start there. Like you have no life other than that it was given to you. And that produces a type of person that Christ wants us to be, which is one who is eager to receive from God, because all of life is a gift anyways, and eager to grow in a, in a great deal of humility, because we can't ultimately determine our own destiny. It's God who does that. Uh, I want to touch on something that I think is uh, somewhat pertinent to a lot of discussions online these days concerning the issue of, of primacy, right? One of the things we talk about when we speak of John Frame's triperspectivalism is that it begins the normative, existential, and situational. And the impression is that all three have um, the same level of authority and power, right? So that you can say your desires carry the same authority as the inspired word of God or, or history carries the same authority. And when you frame it that way, that can be the source, the genesis of justifying all sorts of bizarre things. It can justify, um, I don't know, deal, um, revival tent, uh, tent meetings. It can justify Roman Catholicism because now tradition and scriptures carry the same weight. 
It can justify charismania. It can justify all sorts of things. Uh, talk about that in from a framing perspective and uh, where can we sort of um, elaborate further so that that level of confusion doesn't um, dr- dramatic danger to the church. Yeah, absolutely. The, the danger in the, the primacy of any kind of one perspective is that we typically tend to gravitate towards one just as people. Um, I, I wouldn't venture to create a personality test based on it, but just in general, people tend to find comfort in you know, either behavior modification or behaving rightly before God, you know, just right obedience, or they're very intellectual people, or they're, you know, they're into desires. And I think most people in our world, they're, they're more of the existential perspective where they're making primary the desires and the, and the, the will and the, the affections. And so when we make one of those primary, um, a good example, we have students at our church from Navigators. Navigators does a great job of, you know, educating people in the Bible and, and, uh, and right thinking. And so what they tend to do is make primary the normative perspective, you know, get the doctrine right, um, and th- then out of that's going to flow other things. And so what Frame does, um, helpfully, is he shows just as we are, are Christians, uh, in the Trinity they're all equal, um, we should not make one of the perspectives uh, the primary. Now, the Bible's the norming norm, as Frame calls it, right? It's the one that controls all the perspectives, so it's always going to be grounding us and guarding us against false doctrine and false living. But um, typically what I found in discipleship is that it's helpful to have a balanced view of all three, because sometimes you'll get in a jam uh, theologically, both in your mind or in your life, and they always interplay, um, where you need to really put greater emphasis on one than the other. I mean, I think for me, the bodily, the bodily kind of situational experience, both in community and just living out the Christian calling and loving my wife and loving my kids and leading my family, um, that was one I had neglected and I'd put primary the doctrine because that's what I thought was the, you know, the, the primary. And, um, that's where people get really off kilter is they, you'll, you'll experience Christians who like, they've got the right doctrine dialed in, but their life is a mess. And then you'll get Christians who are the other way around. Now, of course, the, the affections one, the existential one, is a big one because people want to interpret Scripture now. Well, I think this or I feel this way. And they're bringing their life experience. You'll get standpoint epistemology, which is sim- simply the primacy of the existential. And you'll get like, well, my life experience is this. And I'm like, I really like, you know, I want, I hear what you're saying. And I hear that you've had a different life than me. That doesn't make you right. Uh, that that does give you some experience, and you felt certain ways about things, but even that can be faulty and corrupted by your creatureliness, um, not just by your sin, but by your own finitude. Um, that's God designed, and so yeah, the primacy gets really. It, I have a whole document on my computer where I've like mapped out different ministries and different movements, where you can see where they they're trying to do one more than the other, or they'll blend two. Um, where you'll get doctrine and devotion, but there's no duty, there's no emphasis on right obedience, or you'll get right obedience and right doctrine, but no no sense of the internal, like, what do I desire in life? What do I feel? Um, that can be a big one. I think what Smith would want us to do is he's trying to get us to get in, to put it in sappy terms, get in touch with your feelings, but like to, to acknowledge, hey, I'm angry, you know, and what am I going to do with that? Um, that is a good thing to do in Christian spirituality and discipleship to, is to ask that question. Now, it's not to justify any feeling that comes into your life. And um, personally, like I, my brother's uh, in a counseling program. And so we're talking about various issues that he's he's exploring. And for a lot of uh, people that go into counseling, there's a lot of primary uh, 
emphasis given to your feelings. Well, what do you feel? And it's like, well, that that's relevant to a point, you know, but at the end of the day, um, with the Nuthetic stream, for example, you get, uh, you know, Jay Adams, which there's lots of helpful stuff there, but there, there can also be a, there can be a diminishment of like, Hey, this is how I feel. And it's like, well, you have to tell your feelings how to obey. And there's, there is truth to that. There, that can be a useful practice, but we can also run that play. Of if we, if we think of discipleship, like a playbook, we'd run that play so much that it's not producing the fruit that God designed it to produce. So that's how I think of the primary and the, the problem of the primary and the and triperspectivalism. Okay, excellent. So let's talk about a, a Presbyterian minister that nobody knows about, Tim Keller. And when we talk about Tim Keller, you, very often we're talking about this kind of thing that you refer to in the book as, you know, a, a theology of discipleship that promotes idol hunting, right? Yeah. Let's kill the idols of our hearts. Let's find where the sin that so easily entangles us, let's find that thing. So that kind of emphasis or overemphasis perhaps on that one thing can lead a man like Keller to say things like, well, there's a real danger in obeying the law, right? right. And I think the I think what, what Frame does in some ways is um, he, he, restores, he restores the balance to the empire for sure. <laughs> but, but the other thing he does is he allows, provides this kind of real... The, the safety net for us so that if we are struggling with um, our behavior, right, if we're struggling with understanding the scriptures, then we, we can look at other things as well to determine where we are in our sanctification so that our our discipleship formation is not basically so, it's not based solely on the, how many Bible verses I have memorized. Right. Right? There are other measures, and I love the way you bring this up because you have, you know, there are many... The typical proposition is right theology leads to right practice. Well, not necessarily. Right. And you and I have probably seen plenty of this in the reform ecosystem, right? If you were to talk to someone who is sort of a disciple of Keller in that regard, who is promoting the centrality and the primacy of idol hunting as the sole means of sanctification, how would you go about to help him think through other categories. Yeah, I think I would just lean on what I've experienced personally, and I would say you must be exhausted because it leads to an introspection which can really be crippling. I mean, it was for me. What's interesting is he, he connects it to Calvin, um, and Calvin is a reformer with Luther, and, and Luther was plagued by this sense that, you know, he can never do enough. And I'm afraid that for many Christians, they also feel because they've made that kind of idols of the heart thing so primary and so dominant in their version of discipleship that, you know, I went to a sermon, oh man, it was like 12 years ago. And uh, the pastor gets up and he goes, I need to admit my, I need to admit my addiction. And I'm like, me and my wife are like, oh boy, here we go. What kind of church are we at? And he goes, I'm just, I'm addicted to coffee. And you know, like, I'm just like you guys who are addicted to alcohol. Me too. Like, that's me. And any alcoholic yeah. in the room is going to be like, dude, come on. Like, that's ridiculous. Yeah. And so what it does, I think, for a lot of people is it, you know, for me, like, uh, and that's that's where I talk with somebody who's, who's come to my church and they're going like, they feel really weighed down because they're like, I want so much out of life. I want to have a good job that's really successful and I want money. That must be an idol. I want this and I can't get it. That must be an idol. And it's like, look, man, like. I, I, I hear that. And maybe maybe the spirit is trying to guide you into holiness in that way. Maybe maybe you watching football, I don't know. But like uh, why don't we just look at God's law? Like why don't we 
Like that, that determines what idolatry is. And when we stray from that, yeah, we should look at the desires of the heart and how those get corrupted. And um, yes, but but we can have a godlike, uh, an un, I'll say ungodlike actually, where we we think we can be like God and know our own hearts to such a degree that we get exhausted by the introspection because we're constantly going like, did I desire, <laughs> like I mean to be frank, did I desire to have sex with my wife too much? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And it's like, that's a godly thing to want to have sex with your wife. But like what a lot of the idol hunting leads people to is like, but how much is too much? And you're constantly afraid of those desires where I, where I, I'm just like, look, like, yes, let God work those things out and pray that God would guide you into holiness and those desires. Um, but the idea that we can be this perfectionist in this lifetime, um, it, there's so much more out there discipleship wise than than that kind of exhausting um introspective version of discipleship mm. fantastic our guest is uh chase davis lead pastor of the well church in denver colorado you can find him on twitter we'll put all that available in our show notes he's the author of this book trinitarian formation a theology of discipleship and i i have to confess this was it, it was incredibly encouraging because it was bringing two worlds that i love it's the world of the uh, triperspectival world where you're seeing the world uh, through different lenses and you're 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 formulating this very uh, thorough narrative of human existence and the world of the world of liturgical practice where you begin to see the world through this sort of ecclesiastical mind and you're seeing the world through through bodily postures and through hymns and psalmody and through liturgical acts and all of that needs to come together. So I, I hope that in the end, when folks read this, it's not so much uh, frame uh, contramundum, but it's it's frame uh, coming together with other voices in the discipleship community so that we can think very carefully about what this looks like. Chase, I want to ask one final question here. Let's say you've got a new believer coming to your congregation. He comes to your congregation and he is just um, very new to the faith. He found the Christian faith through, uh, I don't know, a chick track or whatever or a street evangelist, uh, as a pastor, how would you sort of begin to talk with this young person about the next step now that he has come to a saving knowledge of our Lord? Oh, man, that's a great question. I love that question. We've got a few guys at our church like that right now. And that, that the reason I like this model, um, not only because I find it theologically sound, um, but it provides me with three easy ways to go, cool, so like, what do you want? Uh, what are you reading? What are you studying? And what are you going to do? And so what are we going to do? We're going to go to church. You know, we're going to practice the liturgies. We're going to obey God in life. What do you want? Like, and that's a really, that can be really hard for men sometimes in, in Christianity because um, they're like, I don't know. I don't know what I want. Like, what do you want out of life? And so let's, that can get into practical discipleship in their life, like how, how to get a job, how to grow in their job. But it can also get to spiritual matters very quickly about what we want out of life and how to be satisfied in God instead of these other pleasures of the world. And then we can get into uh, resourcement with, with doctrine and knowledge. So are we listening to sermons? Are we, you know, I gave uh, the, I'm starting to buy for people that get baptized at our church, Knowing God by J.I. Packer. And Wonderful. and I'm trying to get them reading that, to get them kind of that curiosity sparked. But all of that to me comes to naught. If you're just over there reading books, if you're not actually like, like asking questions and living, trying to live it out in community, so it's all three put together. We're going to go to church, we're going to study sound doctrine, and we're going to cultivate godly hearts. Um, those to me are the three things I'm asking, um, which can be a lot 
you know, I'm, I can be a lot personally uh, to some people. And so, you know, I want I want to be receptive to the, like they're a brand new believer. We got to be baby steps here. I'm not looking for the moon. We're just looking for basic like, hey, what is what is what would you like to see better in your marriage? Um, and let's get into some real pastoral ministry there. So the it, it's a helpful framing of like how are our beliefs, how are our desires and how is my life? Um, and it's just a great kind of like litmus test of where we're at with God. Mm. Excellent. Chase Davis, man, a delight to uh, finally be able to interview you in this excellent book. And uh, thanks for your productivity and your insight, my brother. Oh, glad to be glad to be here. Thanks for having me.